This season four premiere is brought to you by Live Fast, Die Poor. Visit livefastdiepoor.com for some great articles, great videos, and Communicore Weekly. That's livefastdiepoor.com. Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And this is the season four premiere of Communicore <sighs> Weekly. Thank you for the cheering. I can hear it from, all the way from here. I appreciate it. We took a very nice, long, week-long hiatus, and now <laughs> we're back again to bring you the great content that you expect from us. It never feels like a hiatus. No, it never does. What's a hiatus? I don't know. The hiatus, uh, the excuse me, the hiatus is usually us reminding uh, the Communicore Weekly Orchestra to get our new theme song ready. That's true. That's true. They take a hiatus every year from a new theme song, and then it's usually <laughs> the last three days before this episode premieres, we get a new one. And it's always fantastic, so it works out pretty well. <laughs> well, well. besides being on livefastdiepoor.com now, we've got some other exciting news that we've been teasing everybody for a very, very long time. Yes, we have. So last year, our theme for the entire season was taking a look at the 1964-1965 New York World's Fair, and we had a great time with that. However, it, it was kind of just interspersed without the season. We only did it every so often. But now we have something that's going to take place the entire season long. And not only is it going to benefit you guys. I don't know where I was going with that. It's just going to benefit is it, is you guys. Is it going to benefit us? It's really not going to benefit us. Well, I mean, it is because we're building goodwill. But it's great yeah. for you guys. And the cadets will be happy and thrilled like that. So basically, season four is going to be the, the year of a million or so limited time Cadets. Very excited about this. I'm just looking to let that sink in for a second. Year. The year. Yeah, go ahead, say of it. Of a million or so limited time cadets. Yes. And we do promise this this celebration will last one calendar year. Yes, it will absolutely. Not last. It's From, not going to be 18 months. No, no, no. It's it, this one calendar year, and that's it. So what does this mean? Well, basically, kind of like a certain theme park that had prizes like every week, that's exactly what we're going to do. Every <laughs> single week, we're going to pick one cadet, and we're going to send them a prize in the mail. And it's going to be yeah. awesome. <laughs> and that's why we've sort of been asking for people's names, addresses, and birthdays, because you may have noticed on Facebook or Twitter that a few of our cadets have received birthday cards already, including Jeff Leepak, who said that his Communicore weekly birthday card was his greatest present he'd ever received thanks jeff that means a lot to us also quick shout out to jeff delgado who actually designed yes. the birthday card because it's incredible um so yes this is one of many things that's going to take place during this year we'll have a winner every week we'll announce this week's winner at the end of the show so you'll know uh to to uh, you know wait by your mailbox for the <laughs> um gift that we're sending to you winner this week um mm -hmm. but also uh, i finally got around to getting us a p.o box and that means we finally have Communicore Weekly Cadet membership cards. 
Mm-hmm. So if you would like a cadet membership card, and I'm totally not joking, guys. This this is real. We actually make membership cards. Send us a self-addressed stamped, stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And I'll also put that on the website as well, so you don't have yeah. to be writing it down as you're driving right now. And we'll post it at least once a day on Facebook and Twitter and our Instagrams. Likely. More than likely. For a long time. Until but, you can I mean, repeat it in your sleep. You can send us a self-addressed stamped envelope. Uh, you can send us fan mail there also. Whatever you want. But that P.O. box is there now for everybody. And seriously, we'll send out membership cards. Uh, they're actually coming in tomorrow at the time that we're recording this. So it's going to be wonderful. Yes. I'm very excited for this year. How about you, George? Oh, I'm very, very excited. Except all the trips I'm going to have to make to the post office. I know. That's a lot of trips to the post office. Yeah. So, oh, well, 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 talking about this, you know, we do have some people that are helping us with the giveaway. Um, we'd like to thank Teresa Corey at Fairy Godmother Travel, who is going to be giving out some spectacular prize packages throughout the year based on various Disney vacation destinations. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty uh-huh. exciting. And uh, Walt Disney... Studio Home Editions has agreed to give us extra copies of Blu-rays that we've been reviewing to give out. And Disney Publishing is going to give us some extra copies of books to send out as well. So we've got tons of different things, including what? Napkins from Club 33? There's a bunch of random stuff from our own personal (laughs) archives that were like, yes, including napkins from Club 33 as well. I mean, that's a pretty cool prize too. But I mean, we do have some pretty great prizes lined up and I'm excited for you guys to uh, receive them, those of you that win. So I'm sure you're all excited to hear who the very first winner is and we'll get to that at the end of the show. So let's jump into the very first history segment of season four. It's time for Disney History. On this show, when we say Walt, we all know who we mean. But in Southern California, there was another Walt who arrived first and some say made the first theme park in America. The year 1920. The people, Walter and Cordelia Knott. Now why does this matter? Well, that is when these two moved to the then sleepy county of Buena Park, California to farm 20 acres of land that they were renting. The Knott family sold berries, uh, berry preserves, and pies from a roadside stand along State Route 39. And that very first winter in Buena Park was ridiculously cold, and much of their initial crop was destroyed by the frost. But Walter, who really wasn't a guy who gave up easily, he took what he had, and he began selling it directly to grocers, kind of eliminating the middleman, which took a lot of his profit. So he was able to make a little bit of money for himself. Okay, so by 1927, Walter had bought uh, 10 acres of land for his family to own themselves. And when the Depression hit a year later, prices for land went way down, allowing him to actually buy another 10 acres. He spent the last of his family's savings to build an adobe structure that became the farm's first permanent building. Built in 1928, the building was 80 feet long and housed a tea room, berry market, and nursery where the berry plants were sold. I was thinking it was like for like baby berry plants. No, no, not, not, not that kind of nursery, like where they rock the, the berries to sleep. Yeah, because that's kind of sweet. And it cute, is kind of know, adorable, actually. Yeah. I like that image. Like, oh, anyway, okay. so in, in 1932, on a visit to uh, visit uh, Rudolf Boysen's farm in nearby Anaheim, Walter was introduced to this new hybrid berry of blackberry, red raspberry, and loganberry. And this crazy concoction, which was crossbred by uh, Boysen himself, it was kind of wilting away and really dying off. So uh, Rudolph gave Walter his last six berry hybrid plants, which Walter took back home, and he cultivated back to health. 
And when the family sold the berries at the roadside stand, people asked, what kind of berries are these? And what Walter said, Boysenberries, named after Rudolph Boysen. So I thought to be a great name for like a boys band. Boysenberries? Yeah, Boysenberries, like, you know, One Direction or... Boysenberry Boys? Something. Uh, Boysenberry anyway. Bears? Yeah. <laughs> you do it that way. That sounds like a book series. <laughs> I would read that. <laughs> However... Uh, with the depression still raging on, boy, I shouldn't have said that with a smile. It was <laughs> Jeez. Okay, the, the Knots found themselves in financial trouble. In order to help make ends meet, Cordelia reluctantly began serving fried chicken dinners on their wedding china to their customers in 1934 in the small tea room. For dessert, she baked boysenberry pie. She served eight dinners that first night for 65 cents apiece. What a steal! That's amazing. Yes. So word began to get out how delicious these dinners were, and as Southern California developed, Highway 39 became this major north-south connection between Los Angeles County and the beaches of Orange County. So the restaurant became a popular rest stop for drivers making the two-hour trip in those days, long before Judge Doom introduced the world <laughs> to the concept of freeways. Because we all know freeways are the wave <laughs> of the future. So as the crowds grew, the Knots began beautifying the area and adding little displays out back. Knott's Berry Place, as it was then known, was becoming a roadside attraction. By 1940, there was a lake, a rock garden, wishing wells, an old stagecoach, water wheels, and a grindstone, uh, a replica of George Washington's Mount Vernon fireplace, and even a rumbling volcano. Uh, there was even a gold mine where guests could pan for gold while they waited for a table. Now, westerns were extremely popular at that time, and Walter kind of wanted to celebrate the story of pioneers. So originally, he was going to build just one building, and then decided, why not build an entire town? So in 1940, just after berry season, Knott set his construction crew to work uh, on these buildings uh, to build this ghost town out of buildings and materials that were salvaged from all over the western United States. And by the time uh, berry season rolled around again in the summer of 1941, the first street of this ghost town was ready for the crowds. So ghost town included the old trials hotel, uh, the pitcher gallery, a blacksmith, uh, a stable, and a covered wagon camp. In 1951, Walter inherited his uncle's silver mill in Calico, an old silver mining town near Barstow, California, where he had worked as a child. Walter then began to purchase the entire town and restore it to its former glory. Many structures were recreated on the ruins of their original foundations. Other structures were disassembled, removed, and reassembled near the railroad depot at Knott's Berry Place to create the new Calico Square. It was here that shows were shown during the day, such as the one in the Calico Saloon held behind the bar. Also in 1951, work began to lay tracks for the Grand Circle Rail Route for recently acquired authentic three-foot narrow-gauge C-19 engines. I don't know what that means, but railroad aficionados will know. Actually, I do know. What that. I have, a, I have a, a vague idea what that means. Sorry. <laughs> um, so to also air to this area, uh, Bud Hurlbut of Hurlbut Enter, uh, I'm sorry, Hurlbut Amusement Company, he constructed the Calico Mine Train in 1960, and it cost 1.5 million dollars. And Bud paid Walt uh, a portion of all the ticket sales for it. And there was never any formal contract between the two. They just shook hands, and that shaking hands deal lasted for decades. And the ride itself is actually still considered to be a classic today and a great innovator for many theme park rides that would come years later at other theme parks, especially in Southern California. Mm -hmm. 
Knott's would continue to expand, even across the street. A tunnel was built under the road for two-way traffic so people could go back and forth between the attractions. On the other side, Jungle Island and Knott's Lagoon were located. It was here that an interactive playground, a carousel, paddle boats, and even a side-wheel riverboat could be found. But back in the main area, new things were being added as well. Uh, the Haunted Shack was added in 1954, which was a fan favorite. Um, Art Glow, which was a collection of Walter Sun Russell's painted rocks that was added. Uh, in 1956, a miniature El Camino Real uh, showing off scenes from the Spanish mission to the north was added. And then the Birdcage Theater was added for shows. And shortly after that, Boot Hill was added to kind of add to the old uh, West theming. In 1966, a brick-for-brick brick recreation of Independence Hall was created across the street for guests to enjoy. It continues to feature an audio presentation with speakers located at appropriate tables, which recalls the debate which led to the United States Declaration of Independence. As for Knott's proper, in 1968, 25 cents admission was charged for the first time after the Knott family circled the property in a tall fence. The fence enclosed three themed areas. The original Calico Ghost Town, Fiesta Village portraying Spanish California, and Gypsy Camp, a new expansion. In 1969, the next major attraction that opened was the Calico Log Ride, and it was the first official public, uh, I'm sorry, the first official public riders were John Wayne and his son Ethan, and arguably, uh, it was the best log ride in the world, and it features all this vintage logging equipment, including a, a small steam train on display within this interior pine-scented woodland forest, and it also detailed a lot of taxidermy forest animals, uh, a very dark interior drop, and it also had a twin-flume uh, split-passenger loading station. Doesn't mean they split the passengers. So no, 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 because that would be bad for business. Yeah, I mean, they'd have to charge a little bit less, probably. Maybe half off? Half off. Ooh. Oh, 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 took the easy well joke. Well done, well done. Okay. Well, as, as time went on, the park began to expand and become more theme park than just wait, a waiting area for, chi for a chicken dinner. More attractions such as the Sky Tower, dark rides like Berry Tales, and even roller coasters began to appear. Uh, even though Cordelia Knott died in 1974 at the age of 84, Walter Knott continued to live on the farm he loved until his death in 1981 a week before his 92nd birthday. Now, the Knott family maintained operation of Knott's Berry Farm until its acquisition by Cedar Fair in December 1997. And though it did move toward an aggressive, teenager-aimed theme park demographic during that time, now it's Knott's is moving back toward its original family-friendly atmosphere and kind of keeping up with uh, Walter and Cordelia's original goals. And Knott's Berry Farm really does continue to bring uh, entertainment with nostalgia and history to Southern California. And it's one of my favorite theme parks in the world. I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. I mean, I got to visit it for the first and unfortunately so far only time. You know, at the end of the community tour, we took that Friday and uh, toured around Knott's Berry Farm and just wish we'd had more time and it wasn't in the high 90s while yes. we were there. It was ridiculously <laughs> hot. But we did spend but, most of our time in Ghost Town, which is the most yes. uh, history-laden part of the park. And, and you're right. You could see how there had been some changes in late 90, and it was slowly reverting back to some of its original glory. It had a lot of charm, really loved it, and highly recommend if you're in the area to visit Disneyland or Jeff Heimbach. One of the two. Spend, yeah, one of the two. Maybe spend both. Some time, spend some time at Knott's Berry Farm. I, I think it's a, it's a great place to go, and it's it's a great experience. I definitely agree. Is. Uh, well, so tell us what you think about Knott's Berry Farm. Give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 
425-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. And tell us what you think. He's a nerd. He's a geek. Because we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is Universal versus Disney, the unofficial guide to American theme parks' greatest rivalry. <laughs> what was that, George? <laughs> uh, rivalry. I think I was channeling a little bit of Bugs Bunny, which is Warner Brothers, not Universal. Yeah. So anyway, this is by uh, Sam Genaway. And unfortunately, I always feel like I'm saying his name wrong. Is it Genaway? Genaway. Genaway. It is Genaway. It's Genaway. Uh, I apologize. apologize, Sam. I apologize. So. I mean, I apologize to you. Okay. So the the Universal Studios theme parks have always sort of been on my periphery, but more as like a, a pale comparison to Disney, so to speak. Uh, I did visit Universal in Hollywood in 1997, and the visit itself really left me cold. And we didn't even ride Jurassic Park. And it was sunny California, so go figure. What? Um, yeah. So I sort of stayed away from the Florida parks until a visit in December of 2013. Uh, as expected, I was blown away by the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and some of the changes that I knew had happened, and I wanted to find out more about the Universal theme parks. Uh, after a cursory search of the literature, there really just is not much out there about Universal itself. Yeah, I mean, the Universal parks are always kind of left out when it comes to a detailed telling of their history. Uh, until now, that is. Uh, Sam has written this wonderful book that tells the park story, you know, from their early days as just a studio tour to current developments happening on both coasts. And it's, it's actually really good. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it, one of the things that surprised me was how much of a history Universal has and really how intertwined it, it was with the Disney Studios and Disneyland, which were pretty much right up the street. Uh, Genway starts with a look at the true beginnings, as he calls it, of the Disney-Universal feud that started in the mid-1980s when Michael Eisner announced a studio tour slash park at Walt Disney World that was going to challenge the supposedly forthcoming Universal Park, which had been announced sort of in the mid-70s, kind of, sort of. Um, after that, Genoway takes us back to the beginnings of Universal, or IMP or IMP, the independent moving pictures company, and introduces us to Carl Lamell. To me, the story is just kind of really incredible, and it weaves throughout Hollywood and theme park history, and, you know, it's amazing to me that when they started it, they didn't start going into the theme park business, but they went in the direction uh, to order, you know, just to compete with the mouse that was up the street in both <laughs> locations. That's how they got to the theme park uh, business. But um, having said that, uh, the title of the book, Universal vs. Disney, it's kind of a misdirection because, you know, it does go over a little bit of the feuding between the two over the years, but the book is definitely about Universal's history. Like, it's all Universal history all the time. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, I felt like the use of the Universal versus Disney as a title sort of was like a misnomer, uh, like a red herring. Uh, it, simply a way to sell copies of the book. But once people read it and find out about it, they're going to buy it because it, 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 it is a good book. Um, the, the feud part really isn't much of the overall book, as we've sort of mentioned. Uh, it, it's probably less than 10% of the book, which, of course, you know, we did lots of scientific study to come up with that. For guess. science. Yes, yes. Um, you know, there, there are a few things I would like to have seen done differently in the book. I really, really wish there had been some maps, especially of the Hollywood area, because 
they kept talking about, well, we removed 4 million cubic feet of dirt off the top of this mountain to create this area. It just would have been nice even if it was something that Sam had drawn himself on a napkin to do, you know, to show, show the changes of the parks over the years. That part felt a little bit to me. Um, uh, beyond that, you know, that was about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, again, like, like you just said, I would have loved to seen, you know, the layout of the park change as the story progressed, but I'm a visual person, so that's kind of just me. But even without the maps, I still enjoyed visualizing how the parks looked uh, way back then versus how they look today. And it's kind of interesting to finally hear the story and how all these things came together to make a theme park or two or three now in this case because um, it really wasn't about being a theme park at first it was just a place where folks could come and learn about how movies are made and to me to see what they turned it into from that is really amazing yeah you know to hear about the stars and whether or not it was in their contract you know that they could leave the area if the tram came through was kind of a neat little point that some of the actors didn't like being around the tram. But anyway. Common uh, people. Who wants yeah, to deal with people. them? Yeah. So uh, so, so Genoway, he really, really did an outstanding job of documenting the early years of Universal, especially all the changes, especially in personnel that, you know, helped found the parks and create them uh, and the different attractions. I still wish I could go back and do the Battlestar Galactica. That would have been so cool. I don't know how I missed that one. So um, you're not going to find you know, a, a better history of Universal that's as accessible and really in one place as the Universal versus Disney book. Um, it, it did it did kind of strike me odd, though, that there wasn't as much coverage of the last few years, especially with the addition of Harry Potter. You know, that really was a game changer for Orlando and got us the princess expansion at <laughs> Magic Kingdom. So. <laughs> uh, I mean, that may have just been cut because, like, mm, the older guard of Universal creatives were more loose-lipped about the thing they started years ago, as opposed to the newer management of today. Oh. Um, yeah. You know, maybe don't want to give away some of their their secrets, <laughs> because if you know their secrets, you know all their secrets. Um, but yeah, I would have liked a little bit more about the recent changes for both coasts, because, you know, Harry Potter's coming uh, to Southern California as well. But I'm yeah. glad that there's finally a history of the parks of those early days in, in one place now. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, overall, you know, Genway has written a very solid history of the Universal theme parks, and it's really made me uh, appreciate them that much more. And, you know, we always talk a lot about how much we would love to have visited Walt Disney World in the 70s or Disneyland in the 60s to see it. I really wish I could have visited Universal in the 60s and 70s to Agreed. see it evolve and change in the different shows they had offered. Uh, I really would like to have seen a, a more straightforward timeline with the development, um, uh, but the book makes sense in its overall context for how how Genway put it together. But you know, even if you just have a passing interest in Universal, you're gonna find this book a very enjoyable read, and I think it's safe to say we both recommend it. I agree. I definitely recommend it. Okay, so this week's book was Universal versus Disney: The Unofficial Guide to American Theme Parks' Greatest Rivalry by Sam Genway. Sometimes it's a one, sometimes it's a two When you gotta go, what you gonna do? It's a bathroom break A bathroom break And now's the point in our show where we take a minute for a bathroom break because we all know at the beginning of season four, you've been waiting for till season four to hold it in. I know, and it's okay. <laughs> um, but this this time on the season four premiere, we're going to be talking about a bathroom that you need to cross a river to get to. 
So if you find yourself on Pirate's Lair on Tom Sawyer Island at Disneyland, you'll actually have two options to use the restroom. Uh, and one is a small shack on the right side of the island, which are probably the second smallest bathrooms at the Disneyland Resort, uh, with the Enchanted Tiki Room coming in first. Um, not a lot of room to move around in, in that small shack at all. But you also have the option of using the one at Fort Wilderness in the far back of the island, which is a little more spacious, but not by much. So, you know, the next time you're escaping from pirates or you need a reprieve from painting a fence, you know, head over to one of these two. Now, since it's on an island, it's probably a little less crowded than usual, but if others had the same idea, you may be waiting online for a few minutes or you may be populating the rivers of America. It really depends how it goes. I don't recommend that last part, though. That's probably a problem. That's gross. Yeah, for, forget I'm, I said I'm that. I'm glad you only mentioned water a few times. Water? Water. <laughs> Can we take a break for a second? I'll be right back. Be right back. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. <laughs> now, when you're getting hungry at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, personally, I would head over to Pecos Bill Tall Tale Inn and Cafe. I, I kind of like that place. I know their food isn't the best. I just like the atmosphere. Because <laughs> um, when you're there... There's a bunch of items that were given to Bill by fellow folk folklore legends that are all over the walls. Um, and several of the characters have a connection to Disney in some way, like Paul Bunyan or Johnny Appleseed. But there is one that has sat on the wall for years with no apparent connection to Disney until the summer of 2013. And the case on the wall held this single black face mask and a silver bullet. And the plaque next to it, which would tell you what it's from, has always been unmarked for some reason, leaving guests to question uh, who it was. However, those who know the Lone Ranger history know that it belongs to none other than the masked man himself. Uh, the silver bullet was actually his calling card and his symbol of justice in a way. And since the film came out, it makes even more sense for it to be there. Now, if they can just make it so the plaque actually says that, uh, someone just forgot it was there probably. I'm sure, but this is your well, reminder, Imagineering. Yeah, I was going to say, now they'll fix it, right? Now they will. Somebody report on that in a couple of weeks and let us know if they put that plaque <laughs> there. Yes, that's fine. So, well, we've uh, hit the end of another episode, but before we go, we wanted to announce this week's winner, and I'm going to totally mess up the name of the contest, even though I've been saying it for the past couple of months. Do you want me to say it now? No, no. It's the Year of a Million or So Limited Time Cadets. Hooray! George! I was able to put magical in there, like limited time magical cadets. No, who does that? That's who ridiculous. Who does that? Yeah. So, so our first winner for the first week of season four <laughs> is, okay, anyway, Kyle J. from Peoria, Arizona. Hooray! And, yay. His prize, or her prize, excuse me, making an assumption there, is Walt Disney's Nine Old Men, The Flip Books by Pete Doctors, the archive series. It's a very heavy, gigantic box of nine flip books. I noticed your breath and got a little out of breath there. I had to Were pick you just it lifting up. it up? It's heavy. I had to pick it up. I knew it. Um, I knew so it. we'll get this in the mail as ASAP, and hopefully Kyle will enjoy it, and we'll take a picture. Congratulations, and Kyle. Yes, please send us a picture of us. you with your prizes. Yep, you can post it to our Facebook page or send it to communicorweekly at gmail.com. Yes. Okay, well, guys, thank you so much for watching and listening and absorbing another episode of Communicore Weekly. Please leave us a rating, uh, leave us a comment or something on iTunes or anywhere. Yes, we like comments. Um, you can email us, as I mentioned, at communicoreweekly at gmail.com. We are still taking your names, addresses, 
and birthdays. Now you sort of know why, so yes, it makes you it more important to get one into us as soon as you can. Also, a quick sidebar. A lot of people are saying, I'm sorry this is late. It's never too late. Continue sending us those emails. Yes. I'm sorry yes. I don't write back individually to every single one because we have so many of them, but we appreciate you guys sending all that information into us. Yes, um, we do. Now, continuing on, please like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Weekly. Yep, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imagineerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbach. And of course, give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. And don't forget to stop at CommuniCoreWeekly.com and click on the link for the store or the Communa store where you can buy some really cool t-shirts and pick up your copy of Communicore Weekly, The Musical. Oh, which is yeah awesome and a must-have, especially if you grew up wearing mouse ears. Mm-hmm. And of course, send us uh, self-addressed stunt envelopes to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432 Orange, California, 92856. So for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening to the Season 4 premiere. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Fourteen Jack.